This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological. The podcast where we explore some of the fascinating science behind life. This is our last episode of series one of Let's Get Physiological. And today we're focusing on aspects of physiology that are relevant to life in lockdown. We'll be speaking to Ben Mailer and Greg Biddle from the University of Leicester about the health consequences of sedentary behaviour. And to Susan Langham-New about our reduced outdoor activity during lockdown and how this could result in vitamin D deficiency. I'm Emily Wilde. And I'm Amy Warnock. Now, let's get physiological. You might have found that being restricted to your house during lockdown has meant that you've spent a bit more time sitting or lying around than usual. But have you considered that it could be having adverse consequences on your health? We spoke to Ben Mailer and Greg Biddle from the University of Leicester to find out more about how this sedentary behaviour can impact our health. First, though, we asked Greg to define the term sedentary behaviour. Sedentary behaviour, as as many different health behaviours, has a formal definition. So the definition is any waking behaviour characterised by an energy expenditure equal to or greater than 1.5 metabolic equivalent, so that's better known as METs. Um, but that's also while in a sitting, reclining or lying position. We often say this definition, but then actually realise it doesn't give much context of exactly what that means. It's very scientific. So we like to give some context. So it's basically time spent sitting that doesn't require high levels of energy expenditure, sitting or lying, of course. So typically these are time spent in the office or time spent driving or uh, sitting watching television. These are the things we conceptualise as sedentary behaviour, really. But an increase in sedentary behaviour isn't just specific to lockdown. In fact, sedentary behaviour has been on the rise for decades. We asked Ben to explain why. We've got a multitude of different reasons why sedentary behaviour has increased over the last few decades. We certainly rely a lot more on technology than we used to, so the, the job market, most jobs now involve some sort of sitting behind a desk using a computer. But then you've got other changes such as uh, my favourite one to talk about is the Wi-Fi kettle. So a couple of years ago, Amazon bought out a kettle which you can turn on from your sofa, basically, through your phone. So technology's developed and it's made it convenient to be sedentary. It's much easier to do things while sedentary now than having to get up off your uh, behind and, and walk over to turn the kettle on. You've got Things like hive heating as well, so you can control the central heating from your phone um, without actually having to get up. Yeah, so what Ben says, basically, we've engineered out the need to move throughout the day. So by doing so, that increases the amount of time we sit. And effectively, throughout evolution, we have engineered out that need to move. And naturally, we do what's easiest for us, and that is to not move, we conserve energy. But then we have issues that arise because of that. Us humans love convenience. So if we can buy a gadget or a tool to make the job a little bit easier for us, we're going to do it. But as much as some of us would love to sit around all day, there are some negative physiological consequences of increased sedentary behaviour. It started out way back, uh, first kind of evidence coming out around the possibility that the amount of time we sit and basically being inactive could be negative for our health, came back 
in the 1950s, a very famous study by Jerry Morris, which is used in every example of physical activity or sensory baby research, but rightly so, where they showed that bus conductors had a lower risk of coronary heart disease versus the bus drivers, the active job versus the sedentary job. So starting there, we can see that there may be an increased risk associated with sitting too much. Um, but in more modern times, we've seen associations with sitting upwards of eight hours, eight hours plus, increasing risk of early death. So that's death from all causes, um, but also diseases such as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And these associations are quite substantial. So some of the, some of the evidence suggests over twice the risk of developing these diseases if you sit too long. So sitting or lying down for large periods of time clearly isn't good for us. It can increase our risk of cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes. But is there anything that we can try and do to reduce these risks? Over the last decade or two, there have been quite a few different experimental studies. So I'll give you a bit of context. What we normally do is we'll get a participant in a lab uh, so that we can truly control what they're doing. And we'll give them a meal and we'll then look at the effect of either sitting without moving for four hours compared with getting up and doing a little bit of physical activity, whether that's standing or light intensity walking every half an hour. And we'll then see what the effect is on your postprandial glucose responses, as well as insulin and other markers of cardiometabolic disease. So what we tend to see is that by doing these little breaks from sitting every yeah, 20 to 30 minutes, we see up to a 30% reduction in your blood sugar levels and as well as your insulin after a meal. There's also some evidence with blood pressure, which is often one of these outcomes that clinicians particularly are interested in because it's such a driver for, well, mortality and health, really. So some recent evidence that we're developing, so this is very new stuff, is uh, potentially if you reduce the amount of time you spend sitting in your everyday life, so what we define as free living, rather than in the lab setting, we may reduce our postprandial blood pressure by up to four units. So that would be a systolic change in blood pressure from, say, 124 to 120, which is seems small, but it's actually probably clinically relevant. So there's potential, as Ben says, reductions in postprandial metabolic biomarkers, but also on these um, other markers such as blood pressure, which are particularly important in clinical practice. So there is evidence that simply reducing the time we spend sitting can help against these negative physiological effects. But is standing alone enough? Standing versus walking is an interesting debate. I often say it depends on the population you're dealing with. So some of the evidence suggests that standing does elicit beneficial cardiometabolic responses in people at risk of type 2 diabetes. They don't have a normal blood glucose level at the start, as it were. So they're a high-risk group. The evidence suggests you don't get as much cardiometabolic benefit if you're a healthy population just by standing alone. You typically need something slightly higher intensity. I say higher intensity, it's just light walking will elicit that benefit. But it tends to be you need that movement if you're a healthy population. But as you're getting more unhealthy, so you become high risk of type 2, for example, or a type 2 diabetic population, uh, you may elicit these benefits from standing breaks alone. It's really important to be clear on what the measure is 
of whether these breaks are beneficial. So you might not see the cardiometabolic benefits from standing as a healthy population, but you may see other benefits such as musculoskeletal improvements or workplace related things and also some cognition or mental health related outcomes as well. So for some people, it might not be as simple as just standing up. How much activity you need to do to counteract the effects of sedentary behaviour, whether it's standing up or doing some light walking, can depend on how healthy you are. So are there any other benefits related to decreasing sedentary behaviour? What we're currently trying to do in the field is see what the translation is from these acute studies in the lab to more longer term intervention type studies. There's a couple of big ones from the University of Leicester that I'm going to mention. The first one was called SMART Work, so SMART being an acronym for Stand More at Work. What we did for that study was essentially, it was a multi-component intervention, so we had a lot of organisational strategies, individual strategies, such as giving people these height-adjustable desks, which you might have seen. They're becoming more popular, so they just allow you to stand up while you're working. So either the whole desk will move or it will be a platform on top of a a normal desk that will just allow you to simply raise the the keyboard, the mouse and, and the screen up. So if we give people the ability at work to stand more, what the recent finding we had from from the smart work study was that job performance increased. I'll stress to say that it was a subjective measurement of job performance, but work engagement increased. We had occupational fatigue reduced as well as sickness presenteeism. So this is a term we use to basically describe if someone's not feeling that well, but they do turn up to work, they're probably not as productive as if they were feeling better. Uh, As well as general sort of quality of life measurements, they all improved. And As Greg just alluded to, we saw a lot of musculoskeletal improvements as well. So particularly shoulder, neck and lower back improvements um, just by participants being able to change their posture regularly throughout the day. So these people probably aren't standing for two minutes every 30 minutes like they do in the lab, but they're able to sit for 30 minutes and then stand up for 30 minutes. And that sort of regular postural changes seems to have these other benefits where potentially we might not see improvements in some of the health markers that we spoke about so there's still other benefits to be had. So introducing a simple workplace initiative such as a standing desk can lead to better job performance, work engagement and musculoskeletal improvements. But it might not be as simple as just implementing standing desks in the workplace. So the follow-up study to smart work is actually called smart work and life so With smart work, we found all these benefits I just mentioned, but what we actually found was, although there was a reduction in sitting at work, about 72 minutes on average, the sitting outside of work increased slightly, so only by 10 to 15 minutes, but it suggests that if we're tackling sitting specifically at work, people may then go home and reward themselves by sitting more at home for having sat less at work. So we're currently halfway through a study called Smart Work and Life, which includes intervention components to try and maintain that reduction in sedentary behaviour so that when people go home, they don't sit more. And that's actually the, the largest study worldwide, which we're currently running now. So there's about 750 participants taking part in that. And in a, a year to 18 months, we should get the findings from that. So that will be really interesting. The team at the University of Leicester are continuing to examine how interventions both in and outside of work can help to maintain these positive results in the long term. 
What about technology being one of the main drivers of sedentary behaviour? I don't necessarily blame the companies for you know, developing these technologies. I think we need to find a way that we work with technology to enable us to achieve healthier behaviour. A lot of the ways we go about trying to change people's behaviour for the better, in terms of reducing sitting or increasing physical activity, involves some sort of technology as an intervention. So we use self-monitoring devices, so these are things more widely known as Fitbit or Garmin or Apple Watch or there's apps on your phone. There's all manner of things that we do these days that are trying to counteract these technologies that are making us more inactive. But I fundamentally think that we need a change in the broad environment. So the environment should encourage movement and make it the primary choice because sensory behaviour is not necessarily a conscious decision. It's something that's done subconsciously. It's what we always describe as ubiquitous. I love the word just because mm. it's, it's a nice word. It's ubiquitous. It, it's everywhere. You know, you go into a waiting room and they say, please take a seat. They don't mean it offensively. They don't mean, please sit down because it's going to increase your risk of type 2 diabetes. But it's just, it's polite. So we need to think of a way that we can shift our environment to mean healthy behaviours are the primary choice and made subconsciously like sitting is done subconsciously now. So now it's time for, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. This is the part of the show when we explore some of the weird and wonderful scientific experiments in the world of physiology. Okay, so I'm sticking with the theme of COVID-19. Okay. Um, and more generally on the spreading of bacteria. Lovely. So today I'll be talking about a study in which they wanted to study which country's paper money is best at transmitting dangerous bacteria. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought it was quite relevant. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was done in 2013. So this is pre-COVID-19. And it was studied by Gedik Voss and Voss. And they actually received an Ig Nobel Prize for their research oh. into what they called dirty money. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know what the Ig Nobel Prize is, it's an annual prize awarded for achievements that first make people laugh and then make people think. So how do they do the study? Well, they examined the paper money from a number of different countries, such as the American dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Indian rupee, the Croatian kuna, the Romanian lu, and the Moroccan dirham. Ooh. Oh, and no. the euro. Don't not, forget not, the euro. Not the pound. Not the pound. Not the pound. Not the pound. And they wanted to find out the survival rates of different type of bacteria. So the bacteria that they looked at were E. coli, which some of you may know, it can cause quite serious food poisoning. They looked at vancosamine resistant enter, enterocosi or VRE. Yeah, let's do VRE for now. Yeah, VRE. We're going to stick with VRE. We don't want me pronouncing lots of bacteria names. Um, which is a type of bacteria that is resistant to the antibiotic vancosamine. I hope I'm saying this right. <laughs> which makes this bacteria quite difficult to treat. And then lastly, and I'm not going to pronounce it all, but MRSA. 
Um, The symptoms of which depend on where you're infected, but it can range from kind of mild infections of the skin to more serious infections in the bloodstream, in the lungs and of the urinary tract. Um, So they applied these different types of bacteria to the different banknotes. Mm -hmm. And then they studied whether they were still present on the money three, six and 24 hours later. Oh, okay. So what did they find? Well, they found that on the Croatian Kuna, after three hours, none of the microorganisms were present. On the Indian rupee, they had disappeared after six hours. But it was a different story for the Romanian Lou. Oh, no. After six hours, all the bacterial strains applied were still present. And they also found MRSA on the Lou one day later. Oh, no. So the authors explain that a potential reason for the difference in the survival rates could be what the banknotes are made of. Mm -hmm. So banknote paper is manufactured from cotton fibre, which is then sometimes mixed with other fibres. However, in the case of the Romanian loo, their currency is made out of polymer or plastic. Oh. Yep. Which the researchers showed allowed growth and transmission of multi-drug resistant pathogens. So, Amy, little test for you. What is the UK currency made out of? Well, I thought we'd recently changed to plastic because now we've so, got new plasticky notes. So, in February 2020, the UK issued its first polymer twenty-pound oh, note. No. <laughs> However. The World Health Organization advises the public to wash their hands after handling money, especially if handling or eating food, but they haven't issued a warning against using banknotes. So be careful, wash your hands, but it's still fine. And now it's time for Physiology in Film. So this is the part of the show where we explore some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. So Emily, how is your lockdown hair looking? Oh, um, I mean, I've gone from washing my hair every day to washing my hair once a week. So you tell me, what what do you think? We're currently on a a video call um, (laughs) and Amy's looking a little bit... I think it's absolutely beautiful, Emily. I mean, I also don't wash my hair particularly regularly. But it's been a while since I've had a haircut and I'm sure it's been the same for you. And in fact, it's been the same for a lot of the world because hairdressers have been closed for quite a while now. Yeah. So I'm sure you're quite concerned, well, we all are, that we're going to come out of lockdown looking like Rapunzel. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was my biggest concern. (laughs) The film I've chosen. Honestly, you'd think it'd be easy to find like a lockdown related film. But I've gone with Rapunzel. (laughs) This is a great link. Yeah. So, you know, it's all the different problems associated with COVID and not getting a haircut is a big one. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. The biggest maybe. It is, yeah. So Rapunzel's a classic fairy tale um, and it was adapted in the Disney film Tangled. So basically, Rapunzel's got magical hair. She's kidnapped, kept in a tower. And at some point, a prince comes along and she throws her super long hair out of the tower and he climbs up it. Um, Great. The animators of the film Tangled, have said that in the film, Rapunzel's hair is approximately 70 feet long. So that's about 21 metres. But are we all going to end up with Rapunzel-length hair when we come out of lockdown? 
And I mean, I think you might know the answer to this already, but I'm going to explain the science behind it. <laughs> so a little bit of science behind hair, everyone's favourite science. <laughs> By week 22, a developing fetus already has all of its hair follicles formed. No. Um, yeah. And at this stage of life, there are about 5 billion hair follicles on the body, about oh 1 million God. on the head and 100,000 of those follicles on the scalp. So I'm currently 24 weeks pregnant. Do I have a hairy fetus right now? You've got, you've got a not necessarily a hairy fetus, but they've got a lot of hair follicles. And that is the most hair follicles your fetus will ever have in its life. Because you never wow. grow any more hair, hair follicles. So your, your fetus oh. is currently at max hairiness. <laughs> <laughs> so hair goes through three phases of growth and shedding. Each hair follicle is independent and goes through the growth cycle at different stages. Otherwise, all your hair would fall out at once, obviously. But instead, a healthy head of hair would usually only shed about 80 to 100 hairs a day. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know about you. I shed a lot more than that. I'm like a Labrador. But, yeah. <laughs> but technically, should only be around 80 to 100 a day. So these three phases of growth are the growth phase or the anagen phase. And this lasts on average three to five years. At the end of the anagen phase, your hair enters the catagen phase. Uh, and this is like a short transitional phase, which lasts approximately 10 days. And then finally, your hair enters the telogen phase. A resting phase when strands are released and they fall out before the whole process is repeated. Oh. Average human hair grows anywhere between 0.5 and 1.7 centimetres a month. So if we take a sort of average of about 1.25 centimetres a month, this would mean that over the course of a year, your hair would grow about 15 centimetres, which actually isn't very much. So, I mean, I think yeah. you can probably already tell that you're not going to have 70 foot long hair <laughs> by the time you're out of lockdown. <laughs> but I'll finish the maths for you anyway, just in case you want to know. But how will I get out of my tower? <laughs> exactly. So Rapunzel is 18 years old in the film Tangled. So she's been locked in a tower for 18 years. So 15 centimetres times 18 years is 270 centimetres. So her hair would probably be about 2 metres, 70 centimetres long, uh, about 9 feet. So it's pretty long, but it's not 70 feet, is it? No, it's not. And it's not. not really long enough to throw out of a tower. I probably should mention that in Tangled, Rapunzel's hair is magic <laughs> it glows gold when she sings like some sort of special spell and it's got some sort of healing ability and so i'm guessing it's probably also got magical growth properties but for standard non-magic hair the guinness world records for the longest hair on a woman belongs to z kuping from china she began growing her hair in 1973 age 13 and 31 years later in 2004 it measured 5.63 meters wow so that's 18 feet which is really impressive, yes. but basically it's still not quite 70 Rapunzel. feet like Rapunzel, which is a shame. No. But, you know, there's another part of the tale. So basically you're not going to end up having Rapunzel length hair. But if you wanted to, could someone climb up your hair? <laughs> <laughs> so we're disregarding the length now. That's not going to happen. But as I said, there's another part of the tale, and that's the prince climbing up her hair. So is this possible? Well, a group of physicists from the University of Leicester actually did some clever calculations and found out that Rapunzel's hair would probably be able to support a weight of around 2,750 kilos. Wow. So that's more than enough for a prince, a few princes probably to climb up. Yeah. But it's important to note that that's just the tensile strength of the hair. So how much weight the hair itself could take before snapping. And it's also like the hair in total in a braid, not the individual hairs. So together yep. they're really strong. But it probably could be ripped out of the follicle on the scalp because Oof. that's going to be the weakest part. So Rapunzel would have to wrap her hair or tie her hair around something to act as a sort of lever to take the pressure off her scalp. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Prince could climb up it. So and a bit of let's get physiological lockdown advice. If you want to let people climb up your hair, that's fine. As long as you've got some sort of measure in place to protect your scalp. But I wouldn't worry too much about it growing 70 foot long anytime soon. And I think your hairdressers are all going to be more than capable of handling your lockdown hair when we finally get out of this. Earlier, we heard from Ben and Greg about the potential effects of the lockdown on your health, with lockdown life potentially meaning more sedentary behaviour. But more time inside can also affect other health systems. In fact, getting enough sunlight is important to our body's production of vitamin D. To find out more about vitamin D, including its role in our bodies and how we can make sure we're getting enough, we spoke to Susan Lanham-New, Professor of Human Nutrition at the University of Surrey. So vitamin D is a really unique nutrient. And what I mean by that is the term vitamin used to have an E on the end. So vitamins are vital amines. And of course, amines are a a particular chemical group. But when it comes to vitamin D, it's a misnomer. And what that means is vitamin D is a pro-hormone. And what we mean by that is your main source is not actually your diet, but it's the amount of UVB exposure that you get. And so across the whole broad spectrum of micronutrients, which of course vitamin D fits into, you have your macronutrients, which is your energy, fat, carbohydrate, etc. And then you have your micronutrients, which we need in much smaller amounts in the diet, but we still nonetheless need them. So for vitamin D, the main source is UVB exposure. So your ultraviolet rays, B rays from the sunlight. So vitamin D comes mainly from our exposure to the sun rather than from our diet like many other vitamins. But what's so important about vitamin D and how does our body use it? So vitamin D has always been traditionally considered to be the nutrient that is incredibly important for bone health. And that work was first done by a wonderful lady called Dame Harriet Chick, who was the first to identify the importance of UVB and indeed cod liver oil to the prevention of rickets in children. Uh, Rickets in children is uh, denoted by either what we call knock knees, where the knees knock together, or bandy legs, where the legs are very round. And it's to do with poorly mineralised bone. And so in order for our bone to be strong, it has to have a supply of vitamin D and indeed calcium, but particularly vitamin D. And so if you don't get enough vitamin D, then your bones will be soft as as a child. And that was something that we had many years ago in the United Kingdom and of course was then eradicated by UVB exposure and then of course cod liver oil. The adult form of rickets is osteomalacia. So once the bone growth plates fuse, the way osteomalacia is is shown is either through radiographic x-rays in which you can pick up that poorly mineralized bone or the way somebody is. And there are many, many people across the world, but particularly in the UK, who have mild osteomalacia and don't realize that they've got it. And the way that that would denote itself is fatigue, tiredness, lethargy, tremendous bone ache. People also tend to walk with a slight waddle because their bones are just not 
where they need to be. And then, of course, osteoporosis, which is porous bone. Osteo means bone, porosis means porous. So osteoporosis is porous bones where you have a very weak bones that are likely to fracture. So vitamin D is obviously incredibly important for our bone health, both in the developing bones of children, but also in the bones of adults. And not getting enough vitamin D is associated with a whole range of bone-related problems. But what about other uses for vitamin D in our bodies? What I think is very extraordinary about vitamin D is whilst we think of it from a musculoskeletal health point of view, it's so important for other health outcomes. So, for example, diabetes. So your pancreatic beta cells that, of course, produce insulin require vitamin D. And so there is speculation, some observational studies, but nowhere near enough randomised controlled trials but certainly speculative studies are mechanistic ones to say that vitamin D may very well be important to the risk of diabetes. And then for immune function, we've since we've identified the vitamin D receptor, the VDR as we call it, the vitamin D receptor, about 200 organs in the body have vitamin D receptors, and that includes your immune system, and which is why, there, of course, there's been so much interest around vitamin D and how important it is to our immune resilience. So we've heard about the importance of getting vitamin D, but can we get vitamin D from exposure to the sun all year round? And what about in periods when we're spending more time indoors, like during lockdown? In areas of northern latitudes, such as that which we see in the United Kingdom, you can only make vitamin D from UVB exposure between March to September. And so from October round to the end of February, maybe even into the beginning of March, depending on the weather and it varies each year, you will make no vitamin D from UVB exposure. And the reason for that is to do with the zenith angle of the sun. So the angle of the sun drops in the winter. And the best way of showing that is the length of your shadow. So in order to be able to make vitamin D, your shadow has to be shorter than your height. And in the winter, so in the autumn and the winter, your shadow would be longer than your height. So vitamin D and what so what happens is it's a vital nutrient. If we're not able to get it from sunlight exposure, we then have to move to getting it in our diet. And there are foods that supply vitamin D, but they are fairly far and few between. And you have to work pretty hard to get vitamin D in your diet or indeed move to a vitamin D supplement. So it's not possible for us to get vitamin D from sun exposure alone all year round. And in cases where we're not getting enough vitamin D, it's advisable to move to a vitamin D supplement. But how much vitamin D should we be aiming to get? So in terms of how much vitamin D that we need, um, this is a very, very interesting one. So up until 2016, it was considered in the United Kingdom that we didn't need vitamin D in our diet because we made enough during the summer to last us during the winter. What has borne out from a whole range of different scientific studies is that that scientific thinking is wrong and that whatever we make in the summer does not last us throughout the whole of the winter. And the half-life of vitamin D is about 28 days. So you will soon be out of your bodily stores. 
In 2016, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition, or SACN as it's known, published its new recommendations for vitamin D, which are 10 micrograms per day. So how much time in the sun would it take us to achieve 10 micrograms, also sometimes referred to as 400 international units? In the spring and the summer, so between March to September, provided that you are out and about getting some UVB rays, and it doesn't have to be a sunny day to get them, you would achieve that through your skin being exposed to sun. Not with clothing, not behind a glass, not with sun cream on. So about 10 to 20 minutes per day, that will top up your vitamin D levels. In the winter, the advice from Public Health England was that during the winter, because it's difficult to achieve it in the diet, so dietary sources would be oily fish, eggs, a number of breakfast cereals are fortified with vitamin D. Those would be good sources. Some milks are fortified, but not many in this country. And there are some other products, um, orange juice and yogurts. Some are fortified, but not a great deal. So your fatty fish, your liver, of course, would provide some vitamin D. But overall, if you're concerned about your vitamin D, and indeed during those winter months, the recommendation from Public Health England was a 10 microgram or 400 international unit of supplement of vitamin D. And of course, during this time now of self-isolation, where so many people are not able to get out, might not be privileged enough to have a garden or even a balcony. And if they do go out for a short walk, you know, they're not going out at, the, at those times when you would make some vitamin D from UVB, which is probably between about 10 a.m. and about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, then absolutely taking that vitamin D supplement is really important. Recently, there has been quite a lot of interest in vitamin D and how it relates to COVID-19, with some suggesting it could lower the risk. But what is the current evidence behind this? So the link between vitamin D and COVID-19 stems from evidence around vitamin D being important to the immune system through that vitamin D receptor. And there have been studies that have looked at vitamin D supplementation and prevention of upper respiratory tract infections or acute respiratory tract infections. Those have been promising, but we don't have enough particularly in Western uh, populations. There was a very good meta-analysis by Adrian Martin, whose group um, that was published in the BMJ in 2017, which is widely cited. It's important to bear in mind that some of the studies that they included in that meta-analysis included countries from developing countries. And of course, it's very important not to, to make an assumption that it would be exactly the same in the Western populations. The mechanisms, I think, have not yet been borne out, but there is a link between the ACE2 receptor, which is very important for um, COVID-19 research, and the link that um, vitamin D has to the RAS system, the uh, Reno-Angiotensin system. But I think those mechanisms haven't yet been borne out, and I think we are, it's too early to say you know how important it is we need those trials to be done and what the the bottom line should be 
is that we should be preventing vitamin D deficiency in our populations. I think the only other thing to add to that would be there's been a lot of speculation on the media because ethnic groups have been so affected by COVID-19, more so than Caucasian groups. And we know from good data in, in the literature that ethnic minorities are more at risk of vitamin D deficiency. There has been that link that's been made, but it's too early to say, you know, that it's because of vitamin D. And of course, we need those studies to be done. Indeed, they are, as we speak, being done in China and in Europe and studies being planned in the United Kingdom. But until we have more evidence, what the bottom line should be is that people should be making sure that they are preventing vitamin D deficiency as they would at any other time of the year, but particularly, you know, during self-isolation. Okay, so now it is time for physiology, true or false. So this is the part of the show where we talk about some common physiology myths and misconceptions and try and figure out if they're actually true or not. Okay, so I am sticking with your theme of confinement. Okay. You know, Rapunzel in the tower for 18 years, did you say? Exactly, yeah. Well, okay, it's not been quite 18 years in lockdown. <laughs> it but feels like it. <laughs> it sometimes feels like it, exactly. So I am going to talk about the subject of boredom okay. because I can imagine it must have been quite boring in Rapunzel's tower for uh, 18 yeah. years. I mean, it's boring enough in lockdown for me to do that much research about hair. So <laughs> yeah, there we go. Exactly. I feel like I know my flat quite intimately now, like every corner of it. Mm -hmm. I feel quite confined. But this true or false isn't about humans. This is about animals. And my question to you is... Do animals get bored in confinement? Hmm. I I think they probably do. Yeah. Depending well, on the species. You are right. So a study conducted in 2012 by Rebecca Meager and Georgia Mason, both from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, showed that the caged mink appeared to suffer from some signs of boredom. And even combated boredom in a similar way that humans do. For example, snacking and napping, <laughs> which is basically how I combat boredom as well. Yeah, I think those I don't know about plus you. knitting seems to be my three. <laughs> knitting, I don't think, they, knitting. <laughs> don't think they reported knitting, but there was a lot of snacking and a lot of napping. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, so how did they study this? Well, they exposed 29 mink to either non-enriched cages so these were kind of sad small cages quite bare not much interaction mm -hmm. um and they compared those mink in the non-enriched cages to those mink in the enriched cages and they had the luxuries of running water um Ooh. a wire mesh tunnel oh, uh, and they were much bigger so both groups were then presented with a range of stimuli and these range from like appealing treats to undesirable objects like for example a puff of air in your face oh yeah the good old air puff 
Yeah, yeah, puff. And they found that minks in the non-enriched cages made contact with all the stimuli much quicker on average. So oh, wow. both the appealing treats, but also the undesirable stimuli. Oh, so they even just wanted a bit of an air puff in their face. They just wanted anything. They just wanted some stimulation, <laughs> like oh, puff of air in the face. It's quite sad. But not only that, but they also spent longer in contact with the stimuli. Mm. So they spent longer, you know, getting puffs of air in their faces. Yeah. Which oh. is a bit sad. Minks in non-enriched cages also consumed more food rewards. I think we've all been there <laughs> and um, spent longer lying down, but awake, just kind of oh, no. st- staring into space. Staring at the ceiling. <laughs> Have you ever done that where you're just so bored, you're just lying on the sofa, just kind of yeah. staring into space? Well, that mm. is a mink in a non-enriched oh, cage. Oh, no. Very Who's sad. Overall, the authors concluded that mink in non-enriched cages showed no evidence of apathy or depression, but instead they showed a heightened investigation of diverse stimuli, which is consistent with kind of human operationalized boredom. Okay. So obviously we can't generalize to humans, but get a wire mesh tunnel and you might find your living environment a little (laughs) less boring. So that's all from us for series one of Let's Get Physiological. We hope you've enjoyed it and maybe even learnt an interesting thing or two along the way. Thanks to our guests, Ben Mailer, Greg Biddle and Susan Lanham-New for their insights into sedentary behaviour and vitamin D deficiency. If you've enjoyed the show, make sure to tell your friends and follow the Physiological Society on social media to stay up to date on all things physiological. I've been Amy Warnock. And I've been Emily Wilde. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.